This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Best is about the insight and the context that we get from our guests. It's a great way to catch up on some of the stories you might have missed on the Bloomberg. Stories you're not going to find in any other news organization. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and on this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best, the Fed's Loretta Mester wants to see prices keep falling. There's more work to do. And that work is going to take restricted monetary policy. The first Bitcoin spot ETFs are finally up and running. Monumental day, let's go. Kathy Wood of ARK Invest on the attention the new funds are getting. The curious extend to state pension funds and state treasurers. It's a really broad swath. And Grayscale's Michael Sonnenshine among those celebrating. (laughs) It is definitely a historic day. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week, powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. A lot of people certainly wondering at this point, is the Fed anywhere close to cutting interest rates or maybe not? New York Fed President John Williams said this week, monetary policy is restrictive enough to guide inflation back to the Fed's 2% target. My base case is that the current restrictive stance of monetary policy will continue to restore balance and bring inflation back to our 2% longer run goal. And Williams speaking at an event in White Plains, New York. He did also say, though, that U.S. interest rates will probably need to stay high for some time. So that left everything kind of up in the air. And former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers telling an Economic Club of New York event this week, he for one is skeptical an interest rate cut is coming soon. Seems to me markets are a bit ahead of themselves on how much cutting the Fed should do or likely will do over the next few months. And Summers, also a contributor to Bloomberg Television. Dana Peterson, chief economist at the conference board, weighing in saying it's going to be a while before we see those cuts. We think that the Fed probably won't start cutting rates until around June. And the key thing will be the the course of inflation. And Peterson there on the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, which you can download wherever you get your podcasts. So a lot of questions, certainly for Fed officials. Our Michael McKee caught up with Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland President Loretta Mester and asked her all about it. Mester tells McKee this past week's CPI data showed mixed results on fighting inflation. And she says it's something she's keeping a very close eye on. I think, you know, if you think about where we start the year, the economy and monetary policy are both in a good place. Inflation today is in a much better place than a year ago. And we've really seen this discernible progress on the inflation. But the December CPI report shows that the job isn't done yet. And that we're on the FOMC, as you know, are committed to finish the job um, of getting inflation back to our 2% target. But, But the important thing to realize is that that disinflation that's been happening has happened while the labor market conditions remain healthy. So that's given us an opportunity, I think, to to really, you know, look at where the economy is going, how it's going to evolve um, at the beginning of the year and really assess, right, whether the economy is evolving as um, we expect it to. My own forecast is that we'll continue to see inflation move down this year. We won't get to our 2% goal this year, but we'll see continued progress. Um, and we'll see continued progress in the product side of the market of getting things into better balance and on the labor market, getting supply and demand into better balance there. So I think we're in a good spot to really assess 
um, conditions as they come in and, and to really evaluate the balance of risks around both parts of our mandate. And so I, I'm kind of, you know, obviously we don't want to see the progress in inflation stall out, but I don't think this report um, suggests that's happening. I, it just suggests we have more work to do and we're committed to do it. Housing is one of the more interest-sensitive sectors, and yet shelter prices have gone up. Uh, do you have a problem with housing, and uh, are, are the delayed lags maybe going to hit it? Uh, what's happening there? I mean, housing is complicated because of two things that have happened, obviously. Supply has been constrained. Um, this was before the pandemic, even. There was constrained supply of housing, and now the pandemic exacerbated that. At the same time, demand for housing changed during the pandemic as well, as people wanted to move move or have a larger house. So the, the, the typical play of higher interest rates in the housing market has been affected by supply and demand conditions that are not typical. I do think we're going to need to see housing inflation continue to move down. We're going to need to see goods inflation continue to move down. We're going to need to see shelter um, core shelter, X housing continue to move down inflation and that. All three of those components are going to need to see more progress. And there's research here at the Cleveland Fed that suggests you can't take one of those out. We're going to have to see that. And we'll likely need to see some adjustment in wages, although we have seen wage growth um, come down. There are some people who look at uh, the wage numbers that we saw in the employment numbers and the CPI in terms of real earnings and uh, the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, 5.7%. Uh, what are the chances that wages are going to push inflation back up again? Well, you know, you talk to district contacts um, and wage setters, and what they do say is there's been discernible, like the labor market they would characterize as still tight, but it's not nearly as tight as it was before. Four. There's still, you know, jobs that demand higher wages, but the rate of increase of wages has come down. So again, we see the adjustment coming. You know, if you look at a lot of different indicators in the labor market, what you see is that supply and demand are coming into better balance. Part of that supply, the labor force participation rate has gone up. People are coming back into the labor market, which is great. I think that's a really good development. Um, and that's helped us um, in a number of ways because it basically, we've been able to do the disinflation at the same time labor market conditions remain healthy. And that's made us not have to face a hard trade-off there. We have, we knew what the job was. The job one was to get that inflation that was exorbitant under control. We have had good progress there, but we just have more work to do there. But this year is going to be one about really looking at the balance now between both parts of our mandate. And so we're going to be focused on, and I certainly will be focused on making sure that we continue to get inflation on a sustainable and timely path back to 2% while we can maintain healthy labor market conditions. Uh, market thinks that May is the most likely month, but there's still a very good chance that you might cut uh, rates in March. Uh, where are you? Well, I mean, it's hard to predict the future, as you know, um, and it's really going to be dependent on how the economy evolves. I think March is probably a, too early in my estimation um, for a rate decline because I think we need to see some more evidence. I think the December CPI report just shows there's more work to do. And that work is going to take restrictive monetary policy. But I do think that as we see continuing disinflation, 
and we could get more evidence that is convincing that inflation is on a sustainable downward path to 2%, then I think, you know, we'll have that conversation about, okay, is it time now when we look at inflation, but also importantly, inflation expectations, right? Is it time now to move our Fed funds rate when monetary policies start that process of moving it back to a neutral rate. And I, what I would say is I do sort of the soft landing scenario, right, as being the, the most likely, but I do think there's risks around it and we have to be attuned to both sides of the mandate. So a reduction in the funds rate that is is because we try to keep monetary policy well calibrated to what's happening on the inflation side of the mandate yeah. and employment side, that's different than having to cut the rate because we're heading into a recession. So, you know, rate it decreases that keep the real rate, you know, not from rising. So when inflation and inflation expectations begin to come down, right, if you didn't do anything to your funds rate, you'd actually be sort of, you know, passively saying a tighter policy. That's the part of the evaluation that we're going to have coming up. But right now, the evaluation, I think, is and the policy evaluation is how long are we needing to keep interest rates and monetary policy at this restrictive stance. The next phase will be about, you know, okay, is it is it now we've seen the conditions we need to start reducing um, the funds rate and reducing our funds rate back to a more neutral stance. I don't think we're there yet. I would like to see more evidence that the economy is progressing as we expect it to, as I expect it to, before we can do that. Well, let me ask you this. In, in terms of timing, Lori Logan says the Fed should begin to talk about tapering QT. John Williams says no. Which side would you be on? Well, I, you know, I can never say we shouldn't be talking about some issue, right? Because I think this is something that's going to be coming up. You know, John, I think, rightly pointed out um, when he gave his remarks earlier this week that the balance sheet reduction is going as it's been planned. And we did announce when we announced that started that in May and the plan in May 2022 that at some point as the balance sheet and reserves come down, we're going to want to sort of reduce the pace of the reduction and then, you know, normalize. But we're still, we still have a lot of reserves in the system. So we don't have to do that imminently at all. I think there's time and we'll be, I'm sure this year will be when we start having the conversations of what that plan would look like. And as we also committed to is we'll make sure that market participants and the public know what the plan is well before we implement it. That was Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland President Loretta Mester with Bloomberg's Michael McKee. And coming up, a close-up look at the birth of Bitcoin spot ETFs. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Denise Pellegrini. And to say this was a big week for Bitcoin, well, that would certainly be an understatement. The first U.S. ETFs that directly hold Bitcoin Well, they got off to a strong start this week, with billions of dollars changing hands in a historical first day of trading. 
For the long-sought investment vehicles, over $4.6 billion worth of shares traded between the almost dozen U.S. Bitcoin spot ETF exchange-traded funds Thursday, Friday, a busy day too. And one of the companies offering a Bitcoin spot ETF is ARK Investment Management. Kathy Wood, CIO and CEO at ARK Invest, tells our Carol Masser, investor interest in Bitcoin ETFs is huge. I do think that uh, a lot of investors have considered, uh, you know, uh, have have been curious. And you'll see uh, we've been uh, from a marketing campaign, we've been using this tagline, aren't you a bit curious? There are so many people who are curious out there. Of course, a lot of our existing clients know all about Bitcoin because we have owned it since 2015. But there are a lot of people who really have a hunger to know. And we can see that as uh, more and more people read our research, tune into our Bitcoin brainstorm that we do with Rod and uh, and Bitcoin Park in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, read our Bitcoin monthlies and, uh, you know, read uh, all we have to say about crypto in blogs and, and in our uh, brainstorm summary. So, you know, we are getting all the curiosity. I think that's why we started. So we know a lot of people are waiting. And believe it or not, Carol, uh, the curious extend to state pension fa- uh, funds and state treasurers we're talking yeah. to. So it's a really... Uh, broad swath. As the headlines crossed the Bloomberg um, that the SEC approved all of those uh, proposals for the spot Bitcoin ETFs, yours included, along with everyone else, the 11. If you look at all the SEC filings, yours included, there's a long list of concerns uh, that there's this is still kind of a new concept and new idea. And there's a lot of unknowns. How frustrating, you know, is it for you? Every time there is uh, a technological breakthrough. The the old guard, you know, basically throw out there all kinds of risks, and it, you know, some people call it fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, it happens every time, Carol. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing uh, for people to really do their homework. They should do their homework. They should understand the risks. Um, but uh, this is par for the course in disruptive innovation. You know, ever and, and thank you, Carol. Uh, you gave us our first interview, 2015, when we were barely off the ground. You believed in us back then. And at the time, you remember we were talking about Tesla. Mm-hmm. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt, not even about autonomous, which is the next set of fears, but about EVs and wouldn't traditional auto manufacturers absolutely choke them to death. This is completely new DNA. And so it's the old DNA, as the old car companies were, the old DNA, uh, you know, basically bashing the old new DNA. But truth wins out. Truth wins out. Better, faster, cheaper, more productive. So... Yeah. And, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you is, as like yourself, all of us here in the newsroom, you know, watching just, you know, new things come into the market over decades. um, And this is certainly interesting, but we are still wondering about the real case use. I mean, that no one has really demonstrated a real life use case when it comes to Bitcoin. It hasn't happened. How do you think about it? We think about it all the time. Uh, Our our first paper, uh, white paper, was all about 
could Bitcoin serve the three roles of money, means of exchange, uh, uh, store of value, unit of account? Most people are thinking store of value right now. But um, I'm going to plug one of our uh, Bitcoin brainstorms. If you want a mind-blowing experience, and I am lucky to be uh, able to ask questions on these brainstorms, but we had, uh, I think it was either our second or third brainstorm, which was about the convergence of Bitcoin and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had on um, people who are, you know, toiling to make all of this happen. Uh, one of them, a roast beef uh, from the Lightning Network and or Lightning Labs. And uh, I have to tell you, I, uh, I, the, what's going on in the emerging markets and the division of labor, the redefinition of labor, a little bit like um, what happened to the gig economy here, but mm -hmm. put that on steroids, put that on steroids. It's already starting to happen. So I would highly, highly, highly um, advise anyone interested in trying to figure out how the way world is going to work. Listen right. to that Bitcoin brainstorm because it's already starting to work in the emerging markets where they need it so desperately. Kathy, what's the advantage of the ARK spot Bitcoin ETF over the others who also got approved? You know, we've been, as you know, um, reporting a lot about this kind of war on fees. Again, you guys cutting your fee. Um, so what's the advantage of going with you versus a BlackRock or a Fidelity or some of the other players who are out there? So uh, at least three advantages, uh, Carol. First, we selected our partner very carefully. 21 shares is the largest uh, peer play crypto ETP provider in the world with two and a half billion dollars in assets. Uh, so uh, what does that mean? That means uh, with uh, their 40 funds before we launched with them, with their 40 funds launched over five years, they have battle tested their infrastructure over booms and busts, over crises, over um, halvings, over forkings. This is not normal for the ETF world. And we think the other ETF providers have a lot to learn, uh, and I'm sure they are, and they will, um, uh, as we go through, uh, you know, these different kinds of experiences. And, the, and they have economies of scale, believe it or not, that have enabled us to drive down our fees this way. Uh, we have more economies of scale because of the infrastructure that 21 shares have built out. So that's the first. The second is research. Both of us give our research away for free. Um, our research started in 2014. We were trying to understand the technology. And then when um, uh, Chris Berniski took over, uh, we fast forwarded into understanding Bitcoin as money and then a new asset class. So we have been uh, taking our um, clients, prospective clients, anyone who wants to read our research, mm -hmm. this journey with us through deep, deep research. And it's getting deeper under uh, Yassine's leadership. So that's the second. And then the third, and this one is not to be underestimated, especially when it comes to the wirehouses, like the Morgan Stanleys, the, the Merrill Lynch, the UBS, Wells Fargo. Um, our uh, our uh, sales force, our distributor, Resolute, 
um, uh, has had our our ETF specials specialists have had to understand Bitcoin since we struck our partnership in 2016. I had a funny story. Rebecca Burke, uh, who's our most senior ETF specialist, uh, joked with me the other day. She said, "Do you know?" Uh, when I was coming to interview uh, to ARC, I, I, I looked up, what is Bitcoin? We all laughed about it because now she, she not only understands it, she uh, believes in it, her conviction is high. She's able to share that message and hold clients' hands when Bitcoin goes through some of the volatility that we see it go through regularly. And that was Kathy Wood, CIO and CEO at ARK Invest, with Bloomberg's Carol Masser. And coming up, more on Bitcoin spot ETFs taking Wall Street by storm with the CEO of Grayscale. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM 121, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Denise Pellegrini. We had truly a historic moment this past week with Bitcoin spot ETFs going live Thursday after finally getting approval to operate in the U.S. from the SEC. SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce. This is a big milestone. Peirce, though, also did couch that a bit. She said the SEC is vowing to be vigilant about possible illegal activity in any Bitcoin exchange traded products. If there is bad activity and it's within the ETP marketplace, we have authority there to investigate and bring enforcement actions as needed. And purse with us there on Bloomberg Radio and Television, the SEC finally giving spot Bitcoin ETFs a thumbs up more than a decade after advocates, including high profile people like the Winklevoss twins, started pushing for it. And Jack Mellers, CEO at Strike, has been an early advocate of crypto. He tells us he thinks it's wildly important as a currency. And he says Bitcoin is finally coming of age. Oh, man. Well, first of all, happy Bitcoin ETF day. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I think it's a huge deal. I, I view Bitcoin as the best expression of fiat debasement. What I mean by that is as nation states and central banks uh, print more of their own currency and devalue it, like devaluing the U.S. dollar, I think Bitcoin is the best expression of that. You can see that most in the rise of Bitcoin's price. And it's because of two things. It's the scarcest asset on the planet. You can't make any more of it. And it's one of the only asset classes in the world that demands energy uh, to acquire it. And so those two things make it the best expression of what's increasingly the biggest problem that money managers have, which is how to take the other side of governments inevitably printing their way out of all this debt. And so the fact that Wall Street said, you know what? Those hoodie coders over the last decade, boy, they got loud mouths like that Jack guy. But we got to get in on this, too, because the government looks like they're going to stop uh, QT and QE and and we need to own an asset that uh, protects us, and I think that's Bitcoin. So monumental day, let's go. Jack Mellers, CEO at Strike. 
And Grayscale Investments, certainly among the companies that pushed to make this happen, it has more plans for the evolution of its funds and other crypto-related products. CEO Michael Sonnenschein at the New York Stock Exchange celebrating, and Bloomberg's Shanali Basic and Kaylee Lines caught up with him on Thursday to ask him what was going through his mind. How does it feel? <laughs> well, it is definitely a historic day. I mean, uh, joining you guys live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, you know, this is the culmination of 10 years of work. Um, it's a huge thank you at this moment to our investors for being patient, supporting us. A huge thank you to the Grayscale team. Um, looking back on the last couple of years, making the decision to sue our regulator, to have that unanimous victory in court, and to then all of that come to fruition and actually have GBTC uplist on New York Stock Exchange as the world's second largest commodity ETF um, is just such a historic moment and such a milestone. So thrilled, feeling really good. Second largest commodity ETF and the largest crypto fund already in the world uh, for Bitcoin. How do you go around then, Michael, attracting new assets to this ETF form? What are your conversations with clients look like? Well, I think what's really exciting about this really is that you're now going to have 11 different spot Bitcoin ETFs on the market. And, you know, GBTC has really paved the way for a lot of those other products to come to market. GBTC will be differentiated, though, right? It came to market with $28 billion of assets, tremendous, tremendous liquidity. We're seeing that play out even further in the New York Stock Exchange. But it won't necessarily be everything to all investors. And so some investors may look for these products that um, are super, super low cost, and that's what's most important to them. To other investors, the fact that GBTC has a 10-year track record, billions of dollars of AUM, that liquidity profile brought to you by a crypto specialist, that'll be some of the differentiators that attract them as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a little too early to see how it's all going to play out. A lot of investors were concerned about potential selling pressure out of GBTC. What are you experiencing? in terms well, of flows. We had a really successful and smooth uplisting uh, to NYSC ARCA. So the volumes have been really, really strong. Well, obviously that's for GPTC, BTC, which has taken up so much attention for this very reason about uh, your attempts to convert it to the spot Bitcoin ETF, what it would mean for everyone else. But to go back to what we were just hearing from Commissioner Peirce, this approval was very narrow, very specific to these Bitcoin products. Grayscale has plenty of other products out there. You've got an Ether Trust, Litecoin, Solana as well, I believe. Are you going to pick a fight with the SEC about <laughs> any of those, try to make any of those spot ETFs, Michael? Well, I think you guys know our business model pretty well, and we're pretty transparent about it. We do have a family of 17 different digital asset products that are each at one stage of a very prescribed four-phase life cycle. GBTC is the first of those products to get to stage four to uplist as a spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, last year, we already filed to uplist our Ethereum product, the Grayscale Ethereum Trust, to a spot Ethereum ETF. Um, and we really believe that GBTC can really pave the way for the rest of that product family to continue along that four-phase life cycle. And ultimately, you'll see from the Grayscale family an entire suite of digital asset or crypto-focused ETFs. Wait, so if you want to see an Ethereum ETF, for example, how soon do you think something like that could happen? To Kaylee's point, <laughs> uh, the SEC was also very clear that this was just an approval for Bitcoin-related ETPs and did sure. not, in fact, they were kind of critical about the crypto industry in their statement. You know, I do think one of the things that we have to look at and how we got to this historic outcome was the fact that the SEC was treated
treating the Bitcoin futures-based products differently than the Bitcoin spot-based products like GBTC. The fact that you know, we now have that you know, similar situation with Ethereum futures-based ETFs, but not Ethereum spot, may pretend that we may have similar arguments that surround the up eventual uplisting or approval of spot Ethereum products in the market. We do have a market of significant size on the CME for Ethereum, and I think that's a really important point and another really important validation for how crypto as an asset class is here to stay. Now, I'm curious about the fee structure, Michael. Was the calculus that you'd rather keep the fee at 1.5% and even face potential outflows because of it with others competing on fees rather than try to compete in the rates to zero for ETFs here? Well, I think for us, first of all, like I've always told you, Sonali, it's always going to be that we were going to reduce fees and we made good on that commitment. We reduced fees by 25 percent. Other issuers coming into the market with no assets, no trading volumes, no base of investors, um, we're really starting coming out of the gate offering incentives to get investors into their funds. I do think GBTC, like we've seen in other ETF categories, um, is really that, that specialist, that first to market with the AUM, with the trading volume, with the track record that does command a higher fee. And I think we're now seeing that now for spot Bitcoin products, the way we've seen it in other parts of the ETF ecosystem. And I think this this is a really important differentiation. You talked about flow volumes earlier. Flows can mean inflows or outflows. What are you seeing in terms of directions either way, net flows at this point in time? I think it's too early to say. Since GBTC has been trading since 2015, we've had investors come into our fund and out of our fund every single day, hundreds of thousands of investors across all 50 states. I think the same will be true with GBTC now as an ETF. And finally, Michael, obviously this concludes uh, what had been a long litigation uh, mess that Grayscale, if you will, had to be involved in with the SEC. But there is other litigation I want to ask you about because obviously Alameda has involved Grayscale in a $4 billion uh, suit essentially seeking $4 billion in value for Grayscale shareholders. Now that these spot ETF products are approved, how does that change? that legal issue for you. Sure, yeah, I mean, it's tough to you know comment on ongoing litigation, um, but what I will say is that we have fulfilled um, the promise that we made to investors, which was getting GBTC uplisted as a spot Bitcoin ETF. Michael, what's next? Are you running well, <laughs> around looking for new assets here? Are you planning on cutting your fees once more? Well, I'll tell you, the last few days um, have almost really been a blur. Um, having a lot of conversations with folks like yourselves, um, speaking a lot with our investors, we're hearing an outpouring of support um, from the investment community, really thanking the Grayscale team um, for forging ahead, for doing the tough work uh, to go up against the regulator, knowing that we had sound arguments. Um, and that really has paved the way uh, for the outcome that we've now achieved here. And you've been listening to Michael Sonnenschein, CEO at Grayscale Investments, on this past week's momentous debut of Bitcoin spot ETFs on the market and the future of trading digital currency products. He spoke with Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines and Shanali Basak. And coming up, Adina Friedman, chair and CEO at NASDAQ on Bitcoin spot ETFs. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. 
I'm Denise Pellegrini, and this was just a huge week for Bitcoin backers. With those Bitcoin spot ETFs approved to operate by the SEC, as we've been talking about, and now the Bitcoin spot ETFs trading. And Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow had a sit-down with Adina Friedman, chair and CEO at NASDAQ on Bitcoin spot ETFs. Here they are on the sidelines of CES in Las Vegas. Well, we are very proud to partner with BlackRock and with Valkyrie to have their, their ETFs listed on NASDAQ. And I mean, it's really interesting. I think that what it really tells you is that from a regulatory point of view, there's been some maturing of the Bitcoin markets to the point where the SEC has now said we approve these new vehicles that allow retail investors to access Bitcoin. They don't have to actually buy underlying Bitcoin, but they can have an opinion about the, the trends in Bitcoin and they can express themselves in a regulated market, um, which of course is NASDAQ. So and also these instruments are highly liquid and it makes it so that they have ready access to the, you know, the, uh, an investable vehicle in this space. So we're, we're excited to be their partner. There is some sort of cerebral, somewhat academic debates about Bitcoin in particular, about whether it is a risk asset, an asset class. If it is not, it, is it a store of value? Is the NASDAQ approach that, that this development kind of moves towards a, a deeper focus on crypto as an asset class? I think you have to look at it a little differently. You know, we have, we have ETFs that reflect lots of different instruments and asset classes, whether it's commodities or equities, bonds, other other forms of you know OTC instruments. As long as they're liquid and they have a solid underlying price discovery mechanism, which now the SEC is saying the Bitcoin ETF, the underlying the underlying market provides price discovery for the ETF, and they are approving the ETF. So I think that that's a, an interesting signal. But I also would say that that's our job is to provide create index products. We have about five hundred billion dollars of assets under management in our own indexes, and then to be the listing exchange for those index provider products that allow investors to invest in all sorts of tradable instruments, including now Bitcoin. Okay, final question on this subject. An SEC X account posts, we now know that it was an unauthorized post. It was a hack. We are looking into it. X, formerly known as Twitter, have explained what they believed happened. As the CEO of a leading exchange, just explain to me what, what it was like for you, that madness, given our Bloomberg audience had a very similar experience. Well, I think uh, the, the, you know, the behaviors in the markets really came from looking at anything that was related to Bitcoin itself. So the okay. underlying Bitcoin markets and then sort of any sort of public companies that had that kind of underlying asset class as part of their, their business. But I think for us, it's really a matter of making sure that we think about more generally what protections we put in place as more technology is used to drive trading, but also as more information is being used in real time to direct people, investors. And we look at it more from our protection perspective. Uh, we, first of all, want to think about as, as AI comes more into the markets, how do we regulate that appropriately. And I think both the SEC and the CFTC have expressed that they're going to be interested in that. What kind of smart regulation can be put in place? But also, what protections do we have if something were to come into the market? We have our circuit breakers. We have the ability to also cut off any particular in, um, in market participant that may be acting in an unusual way. And we can obviously use great technology to do that. But then also, we have to make sure that as AI becomes a bigger part of the ecosystem, how do we make sure we protect, we protect investors in the process? NASDAQ is a technology company. True or false? True. 
why? Okay, so so we obviously have this wonderful foundation as a market operator, and we are really, really proud of that. And we are obviously leverage very advanced technology to ma- manage well, our markets. We're talking about AI principally at the moment. Right, but as we've broadened our scope, we provide um, great technology that really enhances liquidity, transparency, and integrity. In fact, we provide market technology to 130 markets around the world, including many markets in Asia. Um, we provide also risk management and regulatory technology to banks and brokers around the world. And then we also provide anti-financial crime technology to banks around the world. And I think that as we've been looking at the use of AI, you know, we really are focused on how can the technology AI be used to protect markets more effectively, to protect the financial system more effectively, root out criminal actors, and use large language models as well as very large data sets in terms of transactions across banks to be more effective. That was Adina Friedman, chair and CEO at NASDAQ with Bloomberg Zed Ludlow. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and this is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. 